Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, Adam Kamara. And this week, special guest, the writer, Park McDougald. So, Park, why don't you tell us uh, a bit about yourself and the selections for this week's manifesto and work of art? Yeah, so uh, my name's Park McDougald. Um, I'm an associate editor at Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, also a writer mostly for uh, New York magazine. Um, And so these selections sort of reverse engineered. Um, Y'all had sent me a list of potential manifestos. I basically wanted to talk about a Naipaul essay. Um, I had written something about him for The Point magazine. Excellent Um, piece. Uh, The world as he saw it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, And I've, that's whenever, that's from whenever he died. Um, So I forget, I don't know if that was August or something. Is it it still your pinned tweet? It's still my pinned tweet. So you can look me up on Twitter and find that. Um, But I wanted to talk about Naipaul and then uh, just looking over the list of of uh, options, saw that Virginia Woolf had written an essay about the essay that I'd never read, so uh, thought it thought it might be interesting. All right, so the two uh, pieces that we're doing are Virginia Woolf's uh, the modern essay. That's our manifesto, and then an essay by Naipaul, uh, Jacques Soustel, and the decline of the West. So what we have is a manifesto about the essay as a form from Woolf, and then an essay. Uh, that we can sort of view through the lens of uh, Wolf's uh, essay and uh, consider in its own right as a work of art. I mean, the the Naipaul really works, I think, both as a, a piece of art and as an example example of the genre and the the form that Wolf is writing about. But yeah, I, I'll just second one more time that uh, anybody interested in Naipaul should absolutely go read Park's essay about him written after his death for The Point magazine. And anybody not interested in Naipaul, um, check your head and pick up some Naipaul. I would say the good one to start with is A House for Mr. Biswas, but we can get into the Naipaul stuff later. For now, Virginia Woolf, the modern essay. What do we have here? Right. So this is actually a – it seems like it's a review of a collection of of English essays, right? Um, and so a, a decent portion of it involves her discussing various essayists who mostly you've never heard of unless you're well-versed in old English essays. And it's a history of the English essay up to – I guess this was published in 1925. Mm-hmm. So, so it goes to 21? 20 – I have 25 on my, but I don't, I don't know. First it was published the, in the Common Reader, Hogarth Press, 1925. Okay. No, but the, the collection that she's reviewing, I believe, goes through 21. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. But it's it's the 50 years preceding the 1920s, basically. History yeah. of the English essay over that period. And she, she basically sets out and says, you know, that the essay is actually one of the most demanding of forms, right? And she compares it to, uh, to other... T- 
sort of types of literary forms. He says, you know, of all forms of literature, the essay is the one which least calls for the use of long words. The principle which controls it is simply that it should give pleasure. The desire which impels us when we take it from the shelf is simply to receive pleasure. Everything in an essay must be subdued to that end. And part of the reason that she she has for this is that other forms have have kind of techniques or tactics at their disposal to keep us going, right? A novel has a story, a poem, rhyme. But what art can the essayist use in these short lengths of prose to sting us wide awake and fix us in a trance, which is not sleep, but rather an intensification of life, a basking with every faculty alert in the sun of pleasure? He must know that is the first essential, how to write. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is not, I think, the intuitive apprehension of an essay for a modern reader that it is chiefly a pleasure-giving instrument, right? There's something that I think rings immediately true about this idea that the essay lacks the kind of immediate artifice that you can, you see right away in a poem or in a novel. You, you feel that, right? Okay, an essay is a sort of in-between form. It's more prosaic. It's uh, closer to the rhythm of everyday speech, and it deals more with the, the matters of everyday life at a scale that resembles everyday life. So the novel, even if it deals with everyday life, deals with it at a scale and in a, a kind of temporal dimension that makes it feel more removed. So on the one hand, what she's saying rings immediately true, right? This idea that the, the essay lacks that artifice. On the other hand, though, whoever thinks of the essay as like a, a pleasure is a, a joyous occasion. An essay is something that's about pleasure rather than about investigation or sort of analysis. It's right. a very, very quaint almost, to, to a modern reader at least, sort of a quaint but, English. Uh, but I think, I actually think it's, I think it's right. So, yeah, we have this idea the essay is a serious thing, but. Um, you know, there's, there's a bit later where she quotes like a long and kind of dull passage from one of the essays. And she says, a book could take that blow, but it sinks an essay. And, you know, when I'm writing essays, uh, I, you know, there's so much kind of compression that goes on. I feel like the essay has to be pressurized, um, especially if you're dealing with or trying to deal with, you know, serious and weighty topics, um, because it's just going to be so easy to lose the reader, to get them to drop out. And so I don't think she's saying that the essay as a form gives more pleasure than a novel, right, uh, necessarily. But that because people turn to a novel in a spirit of play and a spirit of pleasure, if you're not sort of delivering that alongside the content of the essay, it's going to turn people off. Uh, yeah. Or they're just, they're just not going to go with you. And I, I think what she means by pleasure, too, is maybe not, you know, it's not this, uh, it's not frivolous pleasure. Um, yeah. It's it's not that it has to be entertaining necessarily. But um, so right in the second paragraph after where you stopped reading, um, everything in an essay must be subdued to that end. It should lay us under a spell with its first word, and we should only wake refreshed with its last. In the interval, we may pass through the most various experiences of amusement, surprise, interest, indignation. We may soar to the heights of fantasy with lamb or plunge to the depths of wisdom with bacon, but we must never be aroused. The essay must lap us about and draw its curtain around the world. Um, so I think what she's talking about there is, you know, it's sort of what you were saying. There's, it's so 
easy to take a wrong turn in an essay um, in a way that in sort of either a longer a nonfiction book um, or a novel, you know, you can have pages or even chapters that are kind of kind of lose the plot. And because of the nature of the form, you have space to to work your way back to something yeah. of interest. And or to digress, to reader. have a sort of messier. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the the. The essays, uh, the most modern of those three, right? It's the mo- uh, most recent invention uh, out of those three. Uh, I guess that's debatable, but I think. Uh, did the you know, Romans have essays? They didn't have essays. They had uh, prose. Um, they had, you know, forms of uh, prosaic literature. But I think, you know, Montaigne is often considered sort of the the father of the essays of form. Um, this. Uh, you know, to assay the verb, uh, you know, sort of to to gaze over a field and and wander through it uh, as a, a kind of form of literature and as a form of uh, artistic endeavor is fairly recent, and it doesn't have either the the oral tradition, which is uh, then embodied in the poetic form and nor does it have the natural oral uh, or, or the natural storytelling tradition that finds its way into the novel which is also more recent than the poem but but the essay is um, the essay is because it is more pressurized because it is more uh, or not pressurized but because the essay is, more like a person trying to convey something to you in close quarters. Right. And it doesn't have the mystery or the spectacle or the, uh, the kind of the, 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 the signs of importance and grandeur because those aren't mm-hmm. built into it in a, a formalized way. If it takes a misstep, it's taking a misstep at the same level as at eye level, right? Yeah. And it's dropping beneath you. A, a novel unfolds either you're so close to it, you're so immersed in it that you know it takes time to regain the footing, and that like the, there's some allowance for that, or at such a distance that it, there's an allowance. And a poem, uh, sort of in the same way, there's an allowance for it. an essay. It's like now, I, now you've revealed you. you you're not smarter than why would I listen to you? You're not smarter than me, and you don't have any tricks that can hold my attention. So this is this is great, right? That it's it's someone trying to tell you something at close quarters because later in I think that's right, and later in the in the piece she talks about this essayist that she likes, Max Beerbaum, right? Mm. Um, who I, I'd never heard of him before. Uh, I'd heard of him, but I I'd never read him before. I looked up some of his essays, and they very much have that quality. You know, when I was reading them, it felt like having a really charming conversation mm-hmm. conversational partner right he would have been great at podcasting and had but to give my mind to it maupassant was an impeccable artist but i think the secret of the hold he had on the young men of my day was not so much that we discerned his cunning as that we delighted in the simplicity which his cunning achieved i had read a great number of his short stories but none that had made me feel as though I, if I were a writer, mightn't have written it myself. 
and she's talking about his style and why he's so good. Uh, and she writes, the triumph is the triumph of style, for it is only by knowing how to write that you can make use in literature of yourself, that self which, while it is essential to literature, is also its most dangerous antagonist. And the reason for that is, you know, if you're not operating at uh, a really high quality, there's that sense that you were talking about of, of the person at close quarters suddenly slipping beneath you. And she writes, we are nauseated by the sight of trivial personalities decomposing in the eternity of print. Yeah, which is a stunningly uh, good and relevant line, you know, one that uh, would serve as, a, I think, a rather fitting and inescapable indictment of uh, the ethos of our own time. But, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the print has a, a gravity. The, the print is something, print is something monumental. Print speaks to eternity in a way, mm -hmm. even though print itself is uh, decomposing physically, materially. The fact that you have uh, set it in print, the fact that you've etched it in stone is, you know, similarly a way of saying, this is supposed to be a, a, a testimony before uh, the world. If that is um, trivial, right, if it betrays in its attempt to evoke style, not a genuine style, but a, a an ornamentation, mm -hmm. yeah, it's sickening. It's like uh, – it's the same reason why, you know – theater, bad theater is so much worse than a bad movie, right? Because you're watching these human beings who are like you do this awful thing in front of you. You know, <laughs> the film, the screen provides enough distance that you're not embarrassed for them and thereby embarrassed for yourself. You take, you get, people actually take delight in bad movies in, in a way that watching sort of a bad theater performance would be painful. I, I know I quote this poem all the time, but you don't know one. O'Hara in uh, My Heart, which is, uh, you know, one of my favorite poems ever, but at least as uh, alive as the vulgar, right? Give me the B-movie. Uh, the B-movie can be great. And part of the reason why the B-movie can be great is because uh, the the badness of it doesn't, uh, doesn't reflect back on you. <laughs> you know, it's not so near to you that you can smell your own body odor. You know, you're not, you're not smelling yourself sweat in the way or seeing yourself sweat in the way you would in a theater. Um, but the thing about like what, what you're, what you're talking about with Wolf's uh, landing on this idea of style and of writing as the central kind of uh, device of the essay, right? So she she sets up the for, for revealing the self of the writer, right? For revealing yeah. the self of the writer. So whereas the poetry has yeah. meter and and line break and and rhyming, and the novel has story and all right. that, and, and character, right? Which is what she talks about in, Mrs. in in another essay, Mrs. Brown and Mr. Bennett, where she you know character is what the the novel revolves around, right. and it's sort of a novelist's interest in other characters in the world and trying to create them or, or, or bring them to life. And actually, interestingly enough, that, that essay, uh, to me, to, to, to my mind, seems very much um, in sort of in conversation with a beer bomb essay, which is also about sort of seeing, seeing people out in the world and sort of projecting and imagining their character and their lives onto them and trying to figure out a way in which to, to enter into other people. Whereas with the essay, you know, what, what the essayist gives you ultimately is that at close quarters conversation with the essayist themselves. 
Yeah, you have to, you have to, I mean, in a novel, because, I mean, maybe you're inhabiting the first person, maybe you're inhabiting the third or whatever, but at some level you can evaluate it on, you know, how, how well drawn is this world? Mm -hmm. Are the characters believable? Um, But failure at that is, like you were saying, Jake, somehow less, uh, less cringe inducing than a failure of an essay, which is somebody attempting to tell you something and either boring you or not actually having anything to say. It's uh, mortifying, right? To yeah. bore somebody, you know, or, you know, if you're standing there trying to hold somebody's attention and you're boring them, I mean, you get a little older and, and, uh, you develop ways of dealing with this, but it never <laughs> stops being mortifying in a sense. Right. And if you are mortified at the inability to hold their attention, you're similarly mortified seeing somebody else do the same. There's something yeah. terrible about it. There's a great line in a early Daniel Close comic. I can't remember, but one, you know, Close has all these um, great, like, um, sort of like uh, deathly wry young women characters who have like um, impeccable sensibilities and. Um, I can't remember, but in one of the early pre-big graphic novels, like 8-Ball, Daniel Close comics, there's a character who's like the worst thing. Like only only boring people are bored, you know? Like <laughs> If you're bored, you're boring, you know? A, an interesting person is never bored because the world is interesting to them. Right. and And they are able to resonate and reverberate with whatever it is that's alive in the world. And that's why they're interesting. And if you allow, now I've been bored. (laughs) I must be a deathly boring person, but, uh, but I, I always remember that. And it feels like an indictment of yourself in a way, you know? Yeah. So, but I wanted to say one other thing, which is, all right. So, well, for Wolf, it's an indictment of the essay. (laughs) That's right. She is not going to say that it's your fault. If you find an essay boring, Uh, No, but that's why it makes it worse. I'm saying I'm not saying that it's your fault if you find an essay boring, though it might be. Depending, you know, one of my essays, for instance, (laughs) is probably something to do with you. But but it's why it's more uh, cringe-inducing, more mortifying than with the novel, for instance, or, or certainly with a film. But what she's doing, right? She's got these five volumes. She's going across the decades with the essay, and she's sort of tracing this development in the essay as a form and and the way that these essays and these various uh, kind of decade, epochal decades uh, deal with the essay up through the 20s in her own time. And part of that development is the way that they deal with the self. And, you know, Phil, you were talking about in the absence of character that a novel would have, she's interested for the essay in the the writer's evocation of their self through their style. And there's a a passage here where I think she both evokes that nicely and, and gets right to the great danger of it. And she writes, yet if the essay admits more properly than biography or fiction of sudden boldness and metaphor and can be polished till every atom of its surface shines There are dangers in that, too. We are soon in sight of ornament. Soon the current, which is the lifeblood of literature, runs slow. 
and instead of sparkling and flashing or moving with a quieter impulse, which has a deeper excitement, words coagulate together in frozen sprays, which, like the grapes on a Christmas tree, glitter for a single night, but are dusty and garish the day after. The temptation to decorate is great where the theme may be of the slightest. Yeah. And that... (laughs) And that ties into later where, you know, she, she goes through and, you know, the essay is unforgiving. You, you know, you can't have this kind of loose talk or, or baggy language. You can't have too much um, ornament. Uh, you need to have a style that evokes the personality. But at the end, you know, uh, and it goes on with that sort of slight theme. She says, the compar- uh, uh, the art of writing has for, uh, must have for background some fierce attachment to an idea. It is on the back of an idea, something believed in with conviction or seen with precision and thus compelling words to its shape that the diverse company, which includes Lamb and Bacon and Mr. Beerbaum and Hudson and Vernon Lee and Mr. Conrad and Leslie Stephen and Butler and Walter, P- Walter Peter reaches the further shore. And so there's, you know, there's the style and then there's, there's the, you know, the individual and the way that they, they evoke that on the page and the way that they keep the thing moving. But at the end of the day, you know, it's that. You're in close quarters, somebody telling you something, and it, no matter how delightful, no matter how witty, no matter how charming they are as a, as, a, as a conversational companion, is the thing that they are telling you worth hearing, right? Is there like an a, a idea at the kernel of it that you're going to be forced it, to grapple it's with? It's a pretty simple formula ultimately, yeah. which is that you got to have something to say and you got to know how to say it. Right. But That's it. Know, easier said than done. You got to have something to say and you got to know how to say it. So it's not just is the thing that you're telling them worth hearing, it's, are you worth listening to? Right. You know, because many a thing has been said that is of vital, monumental importance that nonetheless withered before it ever reached uh, anybody or had any impact on the world because the manner in which it was said either was stultifying, too self-important, you know, perhaps overly ornamented, perhaps the person saying it was too taken with the importance of the thing they were saying and, and ended up freighting it with so yeah. much, uh, so much uh, sort of uh, portent that it, it couldn't bear it. And it just becomes something that you don't want to listen to. It's this thing where you have to, you, you could have the, the greatest theme. Like this is a real danger in writing an essay. You know, I, I speak now, I speak now as an essay writer. That, that sounds um, just a little bit more pretentious than I intended to <laughs> take that a, a degree of pretentiousness less. And, and that's how pretentious I want it to sound. But as an essay writer, sometimes the thing you want to say really is important and you know you're onto something and that's what kills you. You know, that's what buries yeah. you. It's not that it's too trivial. It's not that you lack a theme it's that you are you you become cripple headed from the the importance of the task in front of you and from the sense that you have this precious cargo and you right. could spoil it you know and you could ruin it all so th- th- there's a bit where she's talking about beer bomb and why she likes him so much right and uh she says 
A Cloud of Pinafores has in it that indescribable inequality stir, and final expressiveness which belongs to life and to life alone. You have not finished with it because you have read it, any more than friendship is ended because it is time to part. Life wells up and alters and adds. Even things in a bookcase change if they are alive. We find ourselves wanting to meet them again. We find them altered. So we look back upon essay after essay by Mr. Beerbaum, knowing that, come September or May, we shall sit down with them and talk. And I think that's the... Like, if that precious cargo, right, is 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 actually going to be delivered to the reader uh, and not spoiled, right, it needs to come in that form, not in a sort of dry syllogism, right? That's right. Um, not where you have uh, the skeleton of an idea that as long as you're moving it can, you know, can walk across – can walk across the stage, but as soon as, you know, you're gone, it falls down into a pile of bones. You need to actually put, you know, flesh and blood on that thing so that it can continue yep. to live. And that's, you know. But not too she, much finery but, either. But not too much she's, ornament. Yeah. yeah, she, yeah. It, it, she's very opposed to just, um, you don't have space for ornament, uh, but also to just give people facts is pedantic and boring. Right. Um, have you either of you guys read... Uh, Elliot Weinberger is a essayist. He had a, no. um, he had a sh- small book called an elemental thing, which I would really recommend to everybody. Um, I like that. It's, title. Uh, it's, it's, I think he calls it like a serial essay collection. Um, S E R I A L. Um, and each of the essays in there are, you know, I think maybe the longest one in there is seven pages or something like that. Most of them are very short. He's got this kind of, encyclopedic knowledge of everything. I I think his background's in poetry or as a translator or something. But he has this really amazing way of, he's very interested in sort of mythology and and ancient Chinese and Aztec culture and things like that. And interspersed throughout the book, you know, about a quarter of the way through, there's an essay called Spring. Midway through, there's an essay called Summer. Uh, Three quarters of the way through, one called Autumn, and then one called Winter at the end. And in each of these essays, which is maybe two pages long or something, he just walks you through all the rituals of the imperial Chinese court about the changing of the season. So in the first month, there's a certain astrological sign rising. Uh, the emperor wears these colors, match with these colors. The concubines wear these colors. They move to this side of the palace, which is oriented, you know, according to the, ast- the astronomical signs and everything. Um, and it's it's incredibly – this is all accomplished in a few hundred words of just slowly in this very kind of poetic meter walking you through this. And you can imagine someone in like a history book or just an academic paper – trying to explain to you, you know, the, the rituals and the, the, the dress and whatnot of, uh, of the ancient Chinese court. And it would, it would be deadly boring. I mean, you, you yeah. it would be impossible to make it through, impossible to retain it. But by, by boiling it down to this thing where he's just, you know, it's almost like you're in the court watching the, uh, watching it watching the concubines move to the summer palace or whatever and the courtiers all dress in white. And in this month we harvest this kind of plant and this month we don't, um, gives it, I mean, it, it makes it interesting. You know, it gives it, 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 it life. 
Mm-hmm. And, and how is that accomplished? I, I think it requires two things. So the difference between the historian who renders that in a way that is, um, you know, if not stultifying, then at, at least kind of dry and, and academic, and the person who uh, brings it to life, there are two distinguishing characteristics, I think, that immediately come to mind. One is sensibility. One is how you are understanding this event. And that is, uh, that is the rudiment of style. That's where style begins, is with sensibility. There's a great line in uh, Anatole Broyard's great memoir of Greenwich, Wit- Greenwich Village life after the war, when Kafka was the rage, where he's talking about style as a way of dancing with the world. You know, that style is, it's your... You know, it's it's your it's your attitude towards your engagement with the world, and it's it's your posture towards the world. That's part of it is the sensibility, but the other part of it is it's a matter of verbs and nouns and adverbs, preferably not too many, and uh, knowing which preposition and where. And there, you know, it's that is uh, that is a very precise and yet also uh, kind of a- a intuitive thing, knowing which words to use, how to take this, how to do it in 200 words. Well, you can't do that in 200 words if you're using words carelessly, if you're using the wrong words, if you're using a word that's going to require, um, you know, too many attendant words so I mean, it, it's maybe this is so obvious; it's almost not worth saying. But it's those two things are what take this this scene that you're trying to evoke, this idea, and and are what make it alive for the reader. Yeah, you know, there's there's uh, the Hegel uh, bit from the Phenomenology: uh, "Truth is not a stamped coin to put in one's pocket," mm. right? And the sort of the the um, you know the, the you know, there's one sense of sort of knowledge and truth as, as that sort of stamped coin, right? Like what is happening in the imperial coin is is a set of facts that you can sort of dump on the table, mm-hmm. right? And instead there's a kind of rich rich collection of facts and experiences and sort of just sensory details. And then there's a way of navigating through that, right? Uh, the structure with which you bring things into the consciousness of the reader so that there is a logic and an order and also a music to it. And then uh, the kind of rhythm of the language itself. And when you have all of those clocking, you know, working together, it feels alive. It feels as though there is an unfolding uh, of information, a sort of uh, experience That's of, right. of this. An experience that, of it, yeah. That, yeah, that the reader is having rather than – here are these, you know, and I, I, I think there's a, to it. there's a there's a deceptiveness of of a good finished essay too, which I think is something of what she's getting at with when it's done successfully, as in beer bomb, um, it will give you the illusion as if it is just someone kind of casually speaking to you. It's a good conversation. You're being told something interesting by an interesting person. Um, but actually you have to, you have to work to achieve that casualness and it's a, yeah. it's a hard one thing. 
Yeah, and the best essays, I think, and we can, uh, maybe later we'll get into what some of our favorite essays are, but the best of them all involve a discovery that the writer is engaging in. And so even if there's a, even if the uh, essay is written with authority, the authority still includes a process of self-revelation, not epiphany, you know, not an epiphanic experience that that happens uh, like a bolt out of the blue somewhere, but it, but an unfolding, a a, a process of uh, working through something, revealing it yeah. to oneself, uh, that's then recreated in the reader. You yeah. know, there's, there's there's a bit from uh, I'll go back to another bit from the phenomenology where he's talking about contrasting philosophical systems and this sort of you know this like, idea of like sort of philosophical progress or or movement, and him instead sort of viewing this diversity uh, of kind of movements towards truth. Uh, and he, uh, Hegel writes, the bud disappears when the blossom breaks through. And one might say that the former is refuted by the latter. Likewise, by virtue of the fruit, the blossom itself may be declared to be a false existence of the plant, since the fruit emerges as the blossom's truth, as it comes to replace the blossom itself. These forms are not merely distinguished from each other, but as incompatible with each other. They also supplant each other. However, at the same time, their fluid na- nature makes them into moments of an organic unity within which they are not only not in conflict with each other, rather one is equally as necessary as the other, and it is this equal necessity which alone constitutes the life of the whole. And that kind of sort of where one can see these sort of disparate forms or different ideas as part of an actual more organic unity. Uh, And I, I often think that like the best writers can get you to get you to consider a much wider and more diverse array of those sorts of things and hold them together with one kind of um, coherent thread. You know, that's when, I don't know, that's when essays are really exciting to me. How often do they have to do it though? You know, so the essay, because it's this sort of medium, uh, medium length form lends itself both to, uh, you know, recurrence, like in a periodicalized way or a, you know, newspaper column sort of way, and also lends itself to topicality because it doesn't require the intensity of experience and of effort uh, as the poem, and, it, and neither does it have the kind of scale of the novel. So it's something happened recently in the world that you, you want to evaluate or analyze or pass judgment on or render as an experience experientially through art, the essay is the form that, that lends itself to that kind of topicality, right? And what that means is that you get people who are habitual essayists in a way that uh, you might have poems, but the, certainly not in the modern world does the poem function in that sort of way where it's uh, where it is a, a, uh, a prism through which the events of uh, quotidian life or of um, – uh, political significance are going to be viewed by ordinary people. The essay still is that to some extent, yeah. especially insofar as the essay and the, let's say, newspaper column are cousin forms, which they are. So if you are expected to deliver the self in the essay, if you're expected to make the essay a performance of the self in some way, and that that performance of the self entails both an idea and a style there are risks involved, right? Going back to that well over and over. And one of those risks, 
uh, Wolf gets into where she writes, and now here she's describing a a nineteenth century, I believe he's a late nineteenth century essayist, Belloc. Yeah, yeah. So she introduces uh, this description that Belloc, this essayist, provides. Belloc writes, "There was a shepherd the other day at Finden Fair who had come from the east by lose with sheep, and who had in his eyes that reminiscence of horizons." which makes the eyes of shepherds and of mountaineers different from the eyes of other men. I went with him to hear what he had to say, for shepherds talk quite differently from other men. And then she writes of this. Happily, the shepherd had little to say, even under the stimulus of the inevitable mug of beer, about the unknown country, for the only remark that he did make proves him either a minor poet unfit for the care of sheep or Mr. Bellick himself masquerading with a fountain pen. That is the penalty which the habitual essayist must be prepared to face. Excuse me, must now be prepared to face. He must masquerade. He cannot afford the time either to be himself or to be other people. He must skim the surface of thought and dilute the strength of personality. He must give us a worn weekly halfpenny instead of a solid sovereign once a year. And this is a tremendous danger to anybody who's doing regular writing. That, that reminds me of the uh, the Twitter meme of the, you know, the woke toddler or whatever. Oh, I was just about yeah. to, <laughs> I was literally about to say the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But it's also, I mean, you get it, you get it in essays too, where you're the, just, the woke just toddler is like, you know, and it's like, that didn't. Right. <laughs> My four-year-old, upon seeing Donald Trump's speech said, yeah, yeah. Mommy, why do people vote for the bad man? Or, yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, it, it, it's worse than that because some of them, it's like the child offering like some sort of much more sophisticated yeah. political commentary. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, these are all Wittgensteinian language games. <laughs> yeah. and, you know. Well, look at this Der Spiegel thing, right? So there was just this revelation. Uh, these people in a, yeah, a small yeah. town in Minnesota, I forget the name of the town. But a German uh, writer of significant regard, I think. A, I think he won. He won GQ. He won somebody's journalist of the year, and right. then just last year had won European. Uh, yeah. And so he goes to this Minnesota town, and he produces this big, uh, sweeping essay. You know, uh, his maybe Tocquevillian is the the wrong adjective for a German, but some sort of grand pronouncement on America. And the whole thing is nothing but a parade of lies and not just lies, but the cheapest, most worn, you know, tawdry lies, like pathetically cliched lies about half glimpsed smokestack Trumpian, uh, you know, X, uh, whatever manufacturing jobs lost and, uh, you know, Mexicans keep out Mexicans keep out and somewhere. the American flag, except instead of stars, it's like five, five, six ammo. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the stripes are all, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like his only uh, reference for America was, was like American beauty and, a terrible movie. Um, I, I always saw it a, a really bad. Harry and I, my brother and I, uh, disagreed. I think he had some defense of that. But how does that happen? It, it happens a few ways. But one of the ways that it happens is that you know you go and you try and look at the world and, and say something about the world, and you're also trying to evoke yourself as you're writing about the world. And what you end up doing is taking 
really the least interesting part of yourself, which is your well-worn suppositions that you don't want to subject to any scrutiny, which are, you know, the dead things that you uh, bring out, like the, whatever the Hegelian line is about the, mm. the truth as currency, which you bring out to pay your way reputationally, and you just impose that over something. There is a Flannery Connor says that the the writer's gift is not their brain but their eye. Right, right. It's like just just look, look and listen. Yeah. That's right. And um, you know, quite an eye Flannery had seeing yeah. things that other people were not seeing. But the that's one risk, right? Which is this sort of platitudinous, like big, I'm going to sum it all up. This is what America is about. But there's another risk, which is, you know, the sort of more modest, weekly columnist risk, which is this sort of routinized masquerading, you know, with these glib pronouncements and uh, a kind of a shtick, you know, like style, a style that evokes the self and speaks to something in the world is difficult. You know, that that instinctively. Sorry, sorry. Just wolf on that. Um, they instinctively draw out of harm's way anything precious that might be damaged by contact with the public or anything sharp that might irritate its skin. And why wouldn't you, right? If you had to do this over and over again, it's a difficult thing to do. And you'd have to stop yourself from withdrawing. Your instinct would be, why would you want to subject yourself in that way? Unless you were driven by something like a mania, because the desire to evoke truth through the through the medium of art, the desire to seek painful truth, to, to make life something daring and dangerous rather than to seek a kind of quietude is difficult. It, it, it requires either a, a great personal you know, self-motivation or some sort of incredible external pressure. Most people, most writers certainly, aren't going to do that especially not week after week. Yeah. Should we... Um, so what would this look like, right? In practice. In practice. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it would look like. I mean, she says it looks like Max Beerbaum's essays. Yeah. Which are nice. I like this. I haven't read any of Beerbaum's. She likes Conrad. A good, good one on, on laughter. Yeah. I've never read any of Conrad's essays. I mean, I, I like Conrad's I, I, novels. I need but. to now. I mean, I'm a huge Conrad fan. Um, okay, but we do have another essay uh, that we can read with the Wolfian, um, the Wolfian idea of the essay in mind, and that is V.S. Naipaul's Jacques Soustel and the Decline of the West. Um, so I, I think maybe the way to start here is, Phil, you want to tell me a bit about Mr. Soustel? Okay, so one thing that's probably worth worth noting... I, I don't know how how well known Jacques Soustel would have been when this essay was published, but I certainly had no idea who he was coming in. And um, I think he was a pretty big figure in the news at the time, although certainly more so everyone in France would have known who he was. Right. He had also right. written sure. a yeah. few essays for Foreign Affairs where Park's now an editor. So to some extent, you think – he he's somebody who'd written multiple essays in foreign affairs. He probably had a, a kind of Western intelligentsia audience that right. was aware of him. Okay, so he was um, kind of grew up in a kind of working class. He was Protestant um, uh, in France. Uh, was you know excellent student, excelled uh, in everything except math. I think it was. Um, 
that they mention. He becomes an anthropologist. His specialty is pre-Columbian civilizations. He writes about the Aztecs. Uh, and then uh, World War II breaks out. He uh, is in Mexico at the time. Uh, and, you know, he becomes part of the Free French for- Forces. He ultimately, um, you know, becomes close with, with Charles de Gaulle. Uh, and then he's made governor general of he Algeria. Has, he has some leading role... He comes back from Mexico during the war right, yeah, and, and he, has some leading role in the Free French Intelligence Service or something yeah, like that yeah. out of – And working with the resistance yeah. and um, – yeah. And so then uh, it becomes governor general of Algeria um, and breaks with de Gaulle over Algerian independence and independence and joins this right-wing terrorist group, right, uh, which carried out bombings and assassinations um, – uh, killed a couple thousand people. Uh, and during the time that uh, Naipaul is writing this, he's in exile, right? And I think, is there anything else that we should say about Sestel? I mean... I think that's... Yeah. yeah so that's not, not a um, not an uncontroversial figure. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing to know is he's, he, he's this conflicted figure where at the time Naipaul's writing about him, he's kind of a terrorist on the run... I mean, I'm unclear as to, to to what degree he was personally engaged in in terrorism or whatever, and that's not clear in the essay either. But right. um, but he also has this history as a hero of the resistance and uh, as a politician, Lieutenant de Gaulle, right. um, and he's a sort of prominent intellectual on uh, on pre-Columbian Mexico. Yeah, and how does Naipaul approach this? Well. Naipaul, in his essay, which is a really a both a profile of Sustel and uh, a study of the ideas in which Sustel is is immersed and the historical processes in which Sustel is engaged, Naipaul comes to this principally through not the ideas in the first place, but through the character of Sustel, and the essay starts as um, almost all of Naipaul's great essays do with uh, one line. And uh, the one line is a simple declarative line, you know, no subordinate clauses. From a distance, Jacques Soustel appears to be two men. That's how it starts. And from there, you now have this, this image, this character of Soustel, as a kind of double figure, and you from that point on in the essay are in pursuit of this character of Sustel. So it's as if the introduction is you trying to catch up to this guy Sustel. He's looking over his shoulder, briefly glancing back at you. You know, Naipaul's giving you this vantage, and then he's in movement again, and you're pursuing him. And what Naipaul gives you then are these, this accretion of detail about who this guy is, but it's never, he never stops, sits Sustel down on a couch, renders a full portrait of him for you to, to take in all at once. It's this, this process of kind of chasing after this feud, fugitive figure right. who is always just within view, but just escaping view at the same time. So just a very simple example when he's describing his physical appearance, right? 
there's a way you can do that would that would be that sort of just sort of odd collection of of facts. This is how Naipaul does it. Photographs emphasize Sustel's heaviness, his double chin, the firm set of the wide mouth, the rimless glasses and the dark pouches under the assessing eyes. But the face is mobile. Eyes and lips are easily touched with humor. He knows about wine and will talk about it, but precisely. I know the vineyard. I know the owner. He draws your attention to the cigarettes he smokes. They are players. They hold a story. In Lyon in 1927, Sustel won an English essay competition. The prize was a fortnight in London. He stayed in a house near Clapham Common. He traveled a lot on the underground, and it was from a machine in and it was from a machine in an underground station that he bought his first packet of cigarettes. They were players. He has smoked them ever since. Right? And so you start from that the photograph, right? And this distance. And then but the face is mobile, eyes and lips easily touched with humor, right? And, you know, the first sentence promises the second, right? And the second is you suddenly in close quarters with Sustel. And then moving through there to the 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 bit about the wine and, and how he talks about it is at first just sort of an elaboration of that physical detail and the way that he moves. And then it moves into his past and the story and the way that he has of connecting, you know, the, the player cigarettes with with – um, this kind of self-presentation. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I mean, it's just masterfully done. Yeah. And, and Sustel, there's this incredible sort of, uh, parallelism between the story Naipaul is telling about Sustel, Sustel's own character as Naipaul is trying to describe it. And, the way the essay itself is put together. So right after that passage you just read, um, which says, you know, he draws your attention to the cigarettes he smokes. They are players. They hold a story. Next paragraph down. His manner is like that of a university lecturer who knows his own reputation and will not be drawn beyond his own subject. If you have nothing to say to him, his lawyer says, he has nothing to say to you. Sustel is not interested in ideas for their own sake. He always appears to speak from a well-prepared position. And this is more than an attribute of exile. Um, so not only is is we're integrating the portrait of Sustel himself and from this place where he started up, Sustel, the two men, Naipaul is showing that actually the the two apparent faces of Sustel are in fact one, one person, um, with a unified personality and that his, his different interests are all the product of this, um, one person's experience. Which, which connects him to Naipaul himself. Right. Right. So in that same paragraph, he's describing Sustel. He gives the impression that he came to terms with himself a long time ago, perhaps even in his precocious adolescence, and that his areas of interest have been defined by his experience, his scholarship, Mexico, the war, Algeria. He still seems able to survey his experience with wonder. He seems continually to process and refine this experience as it expands within its defined limits. It is the method neither of the scholar nor of the politician, but of both together, and it comes close to the method of the novelist, making art of egotism, creating a private, impenetrable whole out of fragments which from a distance might appear unrelated. And that is connecting him to Naipaul. It's also very much what Virginia Woolf was talking about and what the what the writer does, drawing that curtain around you and, you know, binding all these things up together. Yeah, it's an essay. And also the egotism, art out of egotism, you know, bringing forth the, forth the eye. It's an essay that embodies Wolf's idea of the essay driven by the idea about a person yeah. who in himself 
embodies that same idea. What Naipaul does, though, that Wolf doesn't mention in a formal way, and perhaps this is the moment to, <laughs> to address the fact that this is our second conversation about these matters. So Phil Park and I met last week, and uh, we did a full rehearsal of this conversation. And uh, <laughs> We didn't know it was a rehearsal. <laughs> well, nevertheless, <laughs> so we, we didn't hit drill. record. Somebody, Somebody I'm not going to say who. Right. He sounds like the cookie monster. That's right. Um, he's not in the room at present, but uh, this, I was saying to Phil, this is what happens when you don't have an NCO in the room with you. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we did have a conversation along these lines. And, you know, I think, I, I believe I was the one who recommended the Sustel essay. Is that right? That's Mark, right. You wanted to yeah. do the yeah. yeah. So the reason why I brought up the Sustel essay in particular was because I think that this is maybe the greatest example of or certainly my favorite example of something that I, I think of as characteristic of Naipaul, which has this kind of Borgesian quality quality to it, which is that Naipaul will make – everything will be metonymic within a Naipaul essay. So an anecdote in a Naipaul essay will resonate with the character – who the anecdote describes, which will at the same time resonate with the world in which the character who the anecdote happened to lives will at the same time resonate with the figure of Naipaul standing outside that world, rendering it through art. Everything sort of vibrates and harmonizes with a, a scale above and a scale below it. And it fits together in this kind of self-enclosure, which is at the same time expanding and closing around itself or, or completing itself. And one of the ways that he does that is that he is able to use a kind of third-person narrative voice, which blurs the lines between Naipaul, the writer, mm -hmm. the subject of the essay, and the thoughts of the universe, you know, and the judgment of the universe and the pronouncements of history and of civilization and of the the forces of uh, time. And the way he does that here is he builds and builds this character of Sustel who, you know, you start in pursuit of Sustel. There are two figures, right? Well, we know that he's a right-wing terrorist. This is one of the first things we learn about him. Slowly, we learn more about him, but nothing that we learn dispels anything that came before it. It only further complicates it. It brings in more fragments. An Italian reporter, we learn on the first page, you know, dimed him out to the police somewhere. But Naipaul never says he's not actually a right-wing terrorist. They had him wrong. It's just that the more you learn about him, the more fragments are introduced the more it, it in the same way that uh you know you get a single image from uh you know when when two um what's the thing uh, like two two projectors uh uh harmonizing into a single image you know you start off with it, it's this blurred vision and then it it gets larger and sort of starts to come into focus and you have this one larger view, but for the first three or four pages of the essay, it's this accretion of bio, uh, biographical detail 
and of historical event. So this is who this character Jacques Soustel is. He was a terrorist, but he was also a war hero, but he was also a Protestant who grew up poor. And he was this historian of uh, the Aztecs and of uh, ancient uh, uh, civilizations in Mexico. And at the same time that you're learning this, Naipaul is telling you something about how he feels about this world without ever actually injecting himself in a, a kind of disruptive first person way to pass judgment on anything. It's just the coloring he gives to and, that narrative. And also what it's, he, chooses, what he cho- chooses to reveal to you and what he doesn't right. you know, focus on. You, you have a vague sense that he's part of this right wing terrorist group, but you know. Of a, a different writer of a different bent would have, you know, maybe I don't know. He doesn't. Just he doesn't the actually OAS, mention you know, that he's in the OAS. In going this on essay. a killing never spree, killing, never you know, it, yeah. cleaning cleaning maids, right? right. Like, you know, um, something like that, right? They're 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 no, would have focused on the victims of the, yeah. the yeah. terrorist attacks instead of telling you about this guy's role as an historian, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so what what happens as you're doing that pursuit is it's not just that he's bringing you closer and closer to Jacques Soustel, but also like there, there's a kind of drama and momentum where you're you're feeling that sort of excitement of the pursuit and you're trying to close the distance and it becomes this sort of self-contained world, right? That, and yet the world is getting larger yeah. as it's – as it's enclosed, you know, it's that's the sort of incredible thing is yeah. that it's this. Right. And, and we end that section with uh, Sustel's ideas on, you know, the history of civilization and you should uh, read that decline part. and decline. All right. So um, um, I'll start. So we get to the end. We've described. Um, Sustel is a man on the run, given some idea of the scholar, the exiled politician, some of his background as a boy. Um, and then we move to some um, – it's like unclear who's speaking here. We go back and forth between direct quotes from Sustel and third-person characterizations by Naipaul of – what I think are meant to be read as what Sustel thinks, but that is also unclear. So um, starting here, which is which is not a quote, uh, true decolonization oh, – little context here. Um, Sustel has broken with de Gaulle over the issue of Algeria. Um, France fought a, mm-hmm. fought a war to keep the Algerian colony – they lost. Soustel um, was deeply opposed to this. Wanted uh, yeah. France to to fully incorporate Al- Algeria. So right. France France yielded to the idol of decolonization and the pressures of mercantile capitalism and converted the low cultures of Black Africa into a poussière of petty dictatorships. And then this is a Soustel quote: "They will use what France left there to the last tractor, to the last bolt, to the last little teaspoon. After that, as in Tripolitania, they will let the goats graze where wheat formerly grew." And then so just below that, characterizing Soustel's view, France has failed and has retreated across the Mediterranean to her own hexagonal territory, not through defeat. Militarily, Algeria was a French victory, but through decadence, through bourgeois selfishness. Les weekends et les vacances d'et, it's French, uh, 
weekends and vacations uh, and through racialism, the unwillingness of the French to accept that Africans, Arabs, Berbers, and the Maltese, Spanish, and Greek colognes of Algeria might also have been made Frenchmen. All civilizations have perished. Even their ruins will go one day. There's no pattern and no goal. But it is Hegelian nonsense to say that the world's history is the world's justice. The Stoic must always fight. Ideas which do not lead to action are just dreams. Action without an ideological orientation is only nihilistic opportunism. So, until the serenity and release of exile, Sustel, the scholar-politician, has been trapped in his dual role. Yeah, and this is probably worth mentioning. The title of the piece, Sustel and the Decline of the West. The Decline of the West is a reference to a book by Spengler that describes world history in terms of sort of civilizations have like a, they're like organisms, right? They have a kind of, of a life cycle, life cycle, right? Um, a thousand years of flourishing and a thousand years of decline. And they either sort of grow and expand and flourish, or they kind of retract and, and, and kind of become exhausted and depleted. And this is, you know, obviously very much in line with that. And it is, and it isn't right. right. Because, uh, Spengler has a cyclical view of history and, mm-hmm. and has a view of uh, inevitable decline, but Spengler has a explicitly racialist view mm-hmm. of uh, decline and of a civilizational life cycle. Whereas one of the complicating ideas here is, you know, you read the the first part of I think what Park introduced, or, or maybe it was you, Phil. You know, uh, the idea that left to their own devices, the low cultures of Black Africa will. Uh, to spoil the advances of civilization. But the second part of it is that one of the failures of the French civilization is to not have included, because of its own racism, the Arabs and Berbers and Africans in its uh, its civilizational empire, a kind of white man's burden uh, uh, idea to that, but the, the burden includes the possibility that uh, all people, regardless of race, could be full French citizens. And, you know, look, the, the way that this builds as an essay, I think, is just a, a near perfection of the form in that, you know, there's this character, this fugitive character, Sustel, and then you get to this final, this ending of the section, which is like, you've been chasing him, chasing him, pursuing him, pursuing him. And then it pulls way back. All of a sudden, instead of being, you know, a single figure in pursuit of another figure, now you're like, you're, you're, you're in the cosmos, you know, and now it's all civilizations have perished. Even their ruins will go, will go one day. There is no pattern and no goal. And look, you better be Naipaul if you want to, you know, or someone, um, someone close to write that way. You have to earn that. Like you, that works because of how it's been set up, you know, and this is, look, I'll say this is a mistake I've made a million times and I'll make a million more. I'll try and work a line like that early in something. You can't. You can't put that kind of like judgment of the universe line early in a piece. People, who the hell are you? What? No, no, you have to have you have to have the blood surging through. You have to be interested. You have to have a character in front of you. You have to have a human being. You have to have a feeling of life. 
then you can make that kind of pronouncement. Then you can pull way back and make that kind of judgment. And the, the genius of these lines also is, as Park was getting at, you never know who's speaking, right? And it's not just a choice between is Naipaul speaking on Sustel's behalf or is Naipaul uh, rendering his own judgment? You know, all civilizations have perished. Even their ruins will go one day. There is no pattern and no goal. Now, is that Sustel saying that? Is that Naipaul saying that? Or is that Naipaul with his ear to the universe just telling you what the universe thinks? Or is it Naipaul telling you what Sustel thinks about how the Aztecs thought? There, it's never clear. And all of those things in this sort of cyclical view of history and this idea that there's this, you know, there's this eternal recurrence, this repetition of certain themes and patterns throughout history, it means that these characters and ideas resonate with each other across time. And it it creates this kind of this echoing labyrinthine structure uh, for the ideas where they're, they're, they're producing this harmonic whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Right. And this is, and and it's, it's, and, and you focused on the character. It slips in through the character. You don't have to, even though those lines have this kind of like cosmic authority to them, right? Curtis, everyone has their preordained position. And everyone is in their place except you. That's what people in the best place say to people in the worst place. There's not a soul on this train who wouldn't trade places with you. Would you trade places with me? Fuck you. You know, if you were to just read that, you'd be like, this is this is some dangerous reactionary stuff in here because it's part of this process of getting to the character. It slips through as I'm becoming closer to the character. I'm trying to understand this person. I'm just trying to close the gap between, you know, myself and this person that he's bringing us towards as a mean of understanding him. And it, it kind of, it slips through in that sense, but then is allowed to echo out as, you know, trying to make greater claims on the world. And there's, there's ways in which, you know, clearly some of this stuff and, and, and the bit about how, you know, that's just going to, you know, you're going to have the goats grazing where, where weeds once grew, you know, that's very similar to a lot of the ideas that, that, that Naipaul explicitly has in some of his, you know, sort of uglier moments. There's, um, uh, you know, in one of, the same book of essays. He has a, a line about Caribbean dependency, and he says, "The island blacks will continue to be dependent on the books, films, and goods of others. In this important way, they will continue to be half-made societies of the dependent people. The third world's third world. They were f- they will forever consume. They will never create. Right? That sort of once you know the sort of civilization has been depleted, and you have uh, a you know what is you know." Uh, uh, what he views as like a weaker civilization or, or one without its own kind of creative traditions or potentials to unleash, you've got nothing. You just have dependency. Mimicry, Mimicry right, is, is the thing. And this is one of the things that drives people crazy about. Yeah, and yet it's, it's not that far off from Fanon in a sense. Well, yeah. Well, it's, it's what – the thing that makes him so brilliant as an essayist and as a novelist um, is the same thing that, that drives people – who right. reject his worldview crazy because there is this – it's not it, – I mean it's easy if somebody just says all civilizations have perished or right. um, 
you know, the low cultures of black Africa will sink into Mm -hmm. uh, poverty. Um, You can just, you can say, who the fuck is this guy? You know, Naipaul has this way of presenting his idea. And, you know, those are some of his uglier ideas. And it's not just those ideas he's presenting in this way, but all his ideas um, where it's not, it doesn't just come across as V.S. Naipaul, the author, saying this. It it comes across as some sort of truth of the universe or the reality of the situations he's finding himself in That's and right. interpreting. And for the people who reject his interpretation, it's it's maddening to try to tease apart that that unified product because it's hard to actually it's hard to actually refute because it, it the the what Naipaul thinks is incorporated so seamlessly in with the reality he's describing and a lot of his I mean he's a novelist but he also does a lot of this nonfiction reporting and right. why not and it he well it's, it's a good yeah so a good example of this and this is why I talked about sort of the selection of what he's showing you and right and like what he's not showing you about the terrorist group that Tustel's a part of is as important as the things that he is you know when he's looking at say like the Black Power movement right yeah. so there's an essay in this about a Michael X, right? Yeah. Uh, and the black, what is it? And the Michael killings? X and the black power canyons. Kill, right. Killings. Yeah. Killings. Um, and, you know, Michael X, uh, and, and he has a novel, uh, Gorillas, which is fantastic, that is also clearly based on this. Um, and, you know, Michael X uh, goes to London uh, and then sort of comes back and has this commune that he's a part of that ultimately they're, sort of these kind of relatively toddly murders that happen. But Naipaul writes, revolution chain system, London words, London abstractions, capable of supporting any meaning Malik chose to give them. It was in London that Malik became a Negro. He was shallow and unoriginal, but he sensed that in England, provincial, rich, and very secure race was to right and left a topic of entertainment, and he became an entertainer. Um, And in another essay in the same book, he's talking about Granada and the U.S. uh, invasion of Granada. Naipaul writes, the New Jewel movement founded in 1972 represented the first educated generation in Granada. It was a full socialist revolution. Cuba became Granada's ally. Imperialism became Granada's enemy. As the mimicry was perfected, so the excitement grew among the faithful in many countries. The mimicry was like the proof of the naturalness and rightness of the cause. It was the story of a retarded island community hijacked by people slightly more educated into the forms of a grandiose revolution. And then... Uh, he later describes, and then later the revolution blew away and what was left in Granada was a murder story, right? And so um, in those specific uh, instances that he's pulling at, he's, you know, he, he's, he's examining in great detail something very similar to the more global portrait that he wants to present, right? Um, and in Gorillaz, uh, the, the novel that is based on the, these sort of black power killings, uh, murders. Uh, one of the things that, that one of the characters says that is really controversial is, uh, and it's a refrain throughout the book, that he doesn't believe in gorillas. He believes in the gangs, right? That like he doesn't um, accept any of the sort of 
kind of rhetoric political that, would, that yeah. would serve to sort of you know give you know more sort of justification or or idea you know romantic mm. um, you know dignity revolutionary to nobility yeah. to right yeah. it's just it's just violence can, right can I say too since we brought up yeah Michael X and I don't want to get yeah on too much of a digression but it is maybe the the first two or three pages of that essay are maybe the single most compelling refutation of Wolf's idea that a great essay needs to give pleasure because it is both one of the most horrifying um, openings to an essay you're ever going to find, this sort of slow, methodical description of the madness of this commune ending in a brutal murder of an English woman with a machete and her burial in a shallow grave. What, what, what makes um, you think that reading about that doesn't give people pleasure? <laughs> um, there, there are different types of pleasure, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, um, but it's so well done. Um, right, but, so, but it's, it's like, but, it's precise, it's, 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 it's built on these like very precise observations and facts that are hard to refute. And then it's the sort of global, global portrait that he is, is resting that on that drives people nuts, but it's so wrapped up in his, in his reporting. But I think it, I think it might help too to give some yeah. co- context of like, what are, what are the, what are these fights that Night Paul's actually engaged okay, yeah, in? And, and you were, I mean, you were getting at this in, in your description of gorillas. And I mean, I, I, I feel like today probably these, these fights are, are less active uh, in some ways, Naipaul's was pretty pretty universally praised when he died. But um, throughout the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, I mean, there was just sort of constant polemic back and forth between him and the post-colonialists on the left and Naipaul's own defenders, uh, Joan Didion and Irving Howe and all these mm-hmm. people writing the New York Review of Books. Um, and what his – the central claim he's kind of repeating – is that all of these, all of this, um, all the talk of kind of the, the post-colonialists and these people about, about the rising third world and, you know, in the United States you get a bit of it, especially in the 1960s where the kind of new left gets a fad for Maoism and, and third world revolution and whatnot, um, that this is all, in Naipaul's view, fantasy. Um, it is... Or shallow mimicry of the, you know, the revolution the blew one away hand, and what was left was a murder story. It's on the just, one yeah. hand, in these countries, he thinks it is mimicry. It is people in broken or undeveloped or malformed societies uh, imitating the ideas they see coming out of, you know, high prestige countries and applying those formulas to their own countries and because they're applied as sterile formulas mm-hmm. without some sort of organic rooting in yeah. the societies themselves, they don't work. Well, this is, this then, is where he, he dovetails with Fanon. And in the West, the he sees the enthusiasm mm-hmm. um, for this sort of politics. Uh, you know, Naipaul's, he's not an academic figure. He's not right engaged in these polemics about the canon, but it's part of that same argument. He thinks this is, uh, you know, Edward Said and these people are, he uses the phrase a lot, middle-class play. He thinks it's, this is shifting words around on a page among comfortable middle-class people who have no real 
investment or even interest in these places that they're cheering on revolution or political change other than as those places exist within a status game that they're playing among themselves that has no stakes because the background unarticulated assumption is always that we will be so comfortable here. Our lives will never really be interrupted. None none of this actually threatens us. So we can, we can chew this on. Mario Vargas Llosa has the same critique of like Latin American intellectuals, ensconced in American universities espousing a particular type of radicalism that is actually more about internal U.S. sort of left-wing depictions of, of the third world than, than about the sort of, you know, uh, actual political issues going yeah. on in, in, in Latin America. Make no mistake. I mean, Naipaul yeah. was a reactionary of sorts. Um, he was, yeah. This is not, a, this is not like, uh, you know, a slander of him. And uh, but but the the actual critique that he's leveling in his non-academic way has to do with this idea, in a sense that this idea that you find in cyclical history that you know a civilization has a kind of momentum of its own yeah. and that it produces these uh, second and third order, uh, you know, like at the the second and third order effects. And Naipaul could be scathing in his judgment of post-colonial societies also when they're explicitly trying to, um, you know, when they're explicitly trying to mimic the Western civilization that he is, in a sense, uh, praising and and in support of. But it's, you know, there's hardly like a jingoistic quality. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing in the... Uh, Nepalian worldview that is a kind of unvarnished celebration of you know the West is the best. That's not what this is about. As a as a writer, though, uh, he also blames this on colonialism, right? In some it's, of the it's all, yeah. this is this is part of what I mean when I was comparing him to Fanon is that yeah. this is all a sort of post colonial process. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a great scene in A Bend in the River where I think it's. I think it's Endar, who – it's not the narrator uh, of A Bend in the River, Salim. It's this character, Endar, who has been educated in the West and comes to visit Salim um, in uh, this part of the, basically the Congo. Um, and Endar is the stand-in for Naipaul in A Bend in the River. And he's telling Salim about how he got to be in this position working for some sort of like UN aid agency or whatever. Um, He's describing going to university in London, coming out, trying to find a job, discovering that English society didn't have a place carved out for him. Um, That all the other white boys in his class were getting these letters, offering them to come out, uh, go to a bank, join the diplomatic service, do whatever. And he didn't have a letter. So he's steaming with resentment about this and, uh, you know, embittered against, against English society. And then he thinks, well, maybe I'll join the, maybe I can join the Indian diplomatic corps. He's a, he's an Indian from East Africa, part of this Indian diaspora community. He goes into the Indian embassy and then he realizes that because he's from the diaspora community, he has no status in India either. Um, he's, uh, he's, uh, from a Brahmin family and the man he encounters there is a lower caste person sort of makes fun of him and treats him disrespectfully. And he's even more enraged about that 
than he is about his mistreatment at the hands of the English. Right. And then he walks out and goes walking along the Thames and has this epiphany moment where he notices that on the bridge are carved these tiny little, I think they're lion's heads or something like that, but it's this like ornate 19th century ironworking. And he has this, just this moment of, my God, all of the, all of the history and human energy and creativity that had to go in to making that little carved wrought iron lion head on the bridge across the Thames a possibility. Um, Like, astonishes him. Like, he... It's this moment where he begins to drop his resentment and have this identification with sort of the West writ broadly. Civilization. You know, it's... He calls it universal civilization, right? right? And And he has no no faith in post-colonial societies, which he thinks have been mutilated by colonialism, have created these sort of like parasites and hangers-on. And and are victims of... And are victims of it, but also he doesn't see any sort of potential uh, to emerge kind of out of it. And this is, you know, Saeed, his critique of him says... The most attractive and immoral move, however, has been Naipaul's, who has allowed himself quite consciously to be turned into a witness for the Western prosecution. What is seen as crucially informative and telling about Naipaul and writers of his about their work is precisely what is weakest about it. The cheapest and the easiest of colonial mythologies about wogs and darkies, myths that even Lord Cromer and Forster's Turtons and Burtons would have been embarrassed to trade in outside their private clubs. And it's this sort of utter lack of respect, you know, the... The, 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 you know, when, when Nipple goes to write about the black power movement, he's going to write about, you know, Michael X, right? That, that, you know, that is, that is the images that, are, that attract him, that, that sort of. Well, these are not marginal images. Yeah, right. Nipple is an interesting figure. First of all, he's a very, very, very gifted writer. There's no question about it. He's also, being a man of color, a wonderful case in point because they can, as Irving Howe did when he reviewed the novel. A Bend in the River when it came out in 1979 in the New York Times, he said, this is a man who's from the third world. From Trinidad. The way, from Trinidad. Yeah. He's Indian from, uh, from the subcontinent, but his family lived in Trinidad and he grew up there. Uh, and like people like uh, Fuad Ajami, you know, and people of that sort, that say, these, are the, these are witnesses. I mean, they, they, they know what they're talking about and they say the place is a filthy mess. Huh? And Naipaul encourages that. Number two, I have no problem with Naipaul saying the things that he wants to say. Everybody's entitled to say what he sees. And, of course, the evidence of his senses are such as he is. We know, however, that he's a very lazy traveler. He's a traveler whose information about the countries he visits is extremely incomplete. These are not marginal images. And, you know, Said is writing this, uh, I assume, from his endowed chair at Columbia. And, as, you know, this is right. coming out of the this critique of Orientalism. Um which, you know, I think is just fundamentally ahistorical, um, the Said Orientalist position, um, you know, it is a flattening of history. But, but it's not entirely wrong. And uh, Naipaul is at his worst when he's most um, moralizing and judgmental and the writing doesn't work as well. So there's a, an essay I think of in this regard which is like the, I think, 
What's that bit? The big collection is a writer in the world. Yeah. So in a writer in the world, I believe it's the second one. It's uh, called a, a second something. It's a, a it's second visit. A second visit. Yeah. And it's about Naipaul going back to India. And it's a, you know, venomous. Um, it's a it's just a cruel essay. And look, if you don't like if you're too turned off by cruelty, probably don't read Naipaul. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, but if it goes too far, it's like, like I, I, this is why I can't stand when um, writers will refer to him by his nickname, Vidya. Um, you'll see, you know, mm-hmm. in print this kind of familiarity sometimes. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's odorous. Like, who are you to call him Vidya? No, this is VS Naipaul. Call him Naipaul. You know, you Inspector Naipaul, right? He's like, this is the ruthless investigator of uh, the realities that you don't want to confront. To call him Vidya is, uh, is an offense to what makes him great. When he okay. is too ruthless, yeah. though, and when he's too judgmental, and when he's too insistent upon the failures of a, a civilization which he invests with a kind of personal animus as he is in this essay about India, I think, where, you know, it's just, it's gratuitous. And, uh, you know, he's basically blaming India for being too pathetic to achieve real tragedy, you know, and there are some great lines in it. And, um, and, and it, it certainly has an effect, but because it's so, because he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't have that remove that makes the other essays great where the judgments, when they come, come after this narrative mm-hmm. momentum has been built and come from a place of kind of cold, dispassionate analysis. Because instead here, they come from a place of very personal and clearly scorned and embittered judgment it reads as invective rather than as revelation, you right. know? So, but in this essay, in Jacques Estelle and Decline of yeah. the West, we get after this pursuit to this sort of kind of vision of history and yeah. of, of, of decline that one must fight against, right? And of civilization, right? Like civilization is invested in the West and it should expand and not, get caught in sort of racialism or other things. Bourgeois indifference. Bourgeois indifference has to be fought for, and it's not being fought for, and that is to the detriment of the French and the, and Alger- the Algerians alike. Right. Yes. That is that is the Soustelle position at, that Naipaul, I think, is clearly very sympathetic to. And then after giving you that, then he goes back to, to Soustelle's childhood and – uh, and then his scholarship on the Aztecs, right? And so he flips the frame. And this is actually how he begins, right? So from the you already mentioned the opening line of the essay. From a distance, Jacques Soustelle appears to be two men. But then it goes, there's the exiled politician whose cause, Alger- uh, running theme of this podcast is we can't pronounce French, Algeria Frances, Algeria is France, has been destroyed. And there's the ethnologist and scholar, the imaginative interpreter of ancient Aztec life, whose first book published when he was 23 was Mexique Terre Indienne, Mexico is Indian, you might say. And so after giving you this this bit about uh, an attachment to the expansion of French civilization, which reads... um, really uncomfortably, right? Uh, especially if you're thinking about what happened during the Algerian War and have any sort of context on, you know, this kind of right-wing group. 
Then he goes to Sustel's love of pre-Columbian civilization, right? And him, you know, going in and to him, there are these artifacts that people are studying, but to him, these artifacts were works of art. They weren't quaint, right? And then he's in Mexico and there's some people uh, among the Mexican intellectuals, right, who do have this kind of like interest in pre-Columbian stuff. On the other side, there were people sometimes of Indian ancestry who thought that the Indian past was bloody and barbaric and should be forgotten. And this is Sustel talking. Of course I took the Indian side, but Mexico can be neither Indian nor Spanish. It is what it is, Indian and Spanish. And then the Aztec universe, as Sustel has described it, was fragile and unstable. The world had been destroyed more than once before and was going to be destroyed again. Destruction could be stayed only by continual offering of human blood. And quote, I never thought of human sacrifice as a barrier to my understanding of the Aztecs. I was imbued very early with the idea of the relativity of human morals. In Sestel's writings, this sacrifice becomes the tragic, ennobling, wearying act of men determined to keep their world going. But destruction came. Between 1519 and 1521, the Spaniards smashed the head and heart of this developing civilization. If the Aztecs had been left alone, Sestel thinks, they would have taken Mexico into the equivalent of the Meiji era in Japan. And strangely... In his writings, there is little anger at the destruction and little regret for what might have, ha- might have developed. Quote, the Spaniards couldn't have acted otherwise, and we mustn't forget the efforts some Spaniards made to record and defend, or that they made possible the society in which Indian life was to reawaken. And, and it's actually right after that that we get one of the few places in the essay where an obvious gap opens up between Naipaul the narrator mm. and Sustel the speaker. Naipaul says, it was this Mexican experience, so large, so complete, grandeur, destruction, decadence, incorporation, new life, that Sustel sought 20 years later to apply to Algeria, the equation of Mexican Indians who had only Mexico with Arab guerrillas who could look to a vast Muslim world, which had once just failed to overrun Europe itself. Yeah. That's, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but that's right. That's, uh... The incompleteness, a, a moment where um, the We're contrast not, becomes clear. Yeah. The relief becomes clear. Yeah. And, well, and he, he's asking you to, <laughs> he's asking you to consider celebrating this French territorial expansion with a similar sort of celebration of pre-Columbian civilizations and adopting this kind of like cold life cycle approach to seeing them decline and fall and what is interesting or what is valuable is, you know, what is preserved. Right? Well, but it, it also relates to Naipaul himself too right. and is illuminating about his worldview because, I mean, Naipaul himself is from Trinidad and I think this plays a lot into how mm-hmm. he, like his own desire to be incorporated into British civilization. What else does he have? I mean, is it, he, he says grew like up slavery on a, was in the vegetation. Yeah, I mean, he, he wrote a whole history book about Trinidad. You know, it's, it's, it was a forgotten colony for 400 years, and being able to go to London and be part of right. this this larger civilization is for Naipaul. That's the only realistic path uh, to live the life he, he wants to live. Yeah, but I mean, he also... But... Well, because for him, civilization is is Western civilization. It's not... Well, it's no, but it's not. I don't think that's that's not it. That's that's why. That's uh, the equation of Mexican Indians who had only Mexico with Arab guerrillas who could look to a vast Muslim world. I think that's where where Naipaul differs. Um, I mean, this this view is maybe in it. 
Except it's not not it's the, not not it's a contemptuous of what of the Muslim world. No, Ooh. it's not contemptuous. What he's saying is that the, there is a rival civilization. He's saying that the the uh, the the ability to be subsumed by this by the Spanish conquest depends in part on a kind of limitation of frame. And whereas if you have within your framework the idea that you once had belonged to a mm-hmm. a civilization that had almost beat off the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, beat off is the wrong uh, <laughs> formulation there, <laughs> had almost beat back, uh, had almost conquered Europe, that the, the subsumption uh, – becomes far, far less likely um, because you believe yourself to belong to a a rival, if not, you know, a greater civilization potentially. And and Naipaul's not coming in and saying like how foolish they were to believe this. I think what he's saying is this gives them strength. You're saying it's foolish of Sustel to believe that you could just apply the same pattern that he observed in Mexico to Algeria. I think that's right. Though where he again aligns with Sustel is in this idea that the contraction of the civilization marks uh, a death cycle and that the loss of confidence, the loss of, you know, the weekends and vacations and the um, the idea that it's better to break off from Algeria than to manage its incorporation – um, is not uh, an act of uh, uh, an act that that increases the vitality of the national project, but that in fact it marks the the beginning of the end in a sense. And you know, it's once you you know it's the process of the British Empire, but that once you give up one territory, the whole thing project starts to come apart, and before you know it, the core of the civilization. Um, is itself uh, in decline. And and I think that uh, you can see that he clearly sympathizes with that view, even if he doesn't share Sussel's exact uh, pronouncement on what should be done. So it's after that and after we get the Aztecs that we finally get to, well, we get to World War II, right? And he runs through it actually pretty quickly. And he pretty quickly gets to liberation and disillusionment and Sussel being like, in reality... There weren't that many people in the resistance. Like it was, a, it was, it was a point something percent of the population that took part, right? Like, yeah. There, there's a degree to which, you know, you know, Naipaul is always sort of puncturing these kind of third world myths of revolution, whatever, uh, and so he'd naturally be attracted to doing the same thing with the the great, great French, French national myth, right? Yeah. yeah. That De Gaulle, had, you know, he had been a De Gaulle, you know, he'd been aligned with De Gaulle mm-hmm. also, so still. Right, and and you know, such a, and how the resistance probably wouldn't have lasted another year, um, and then we get to um, Algeria, and he sums up the whole conflict in one paragraph. In time, the insurre- insurrection tied down 500,000 French troops. When it was over in 1962, the French had lost 14,000 men. The insurgents, 140,000. 3,000 European civilians had been killed. 30,000 Arabs. Neither was it over when he wrote that. Right. Um, so, so well, he – all right. First to spell, all that followed has been betrayal and destruction. Destruction is not a style. It is the negation of all styles. The million colons have left. One Algerian dictatorship has been replaced by another. Arab Algeria sinks. An idea of France has been destroyed. And then you have the very end. 
And you think so? And you think that that Naipaul has this? This is another break with Sustel. I no. I think Naipaul would probably agree with all that. I think where Naipaul breaks with Sustel, it's not in the objective analysis of you know was it a bad thing for is is independent Algeria sinking under. Dictatorship and corruption. Yeah, that's very much Naipaul's. Naipaul, I think his view is that it was a delusion for Sustel and the Frenchmen like Sustel to ever believe that French civilization could have simply swallowed up uh, Muslim Algeria due mm-hmm. to the continued power of the idea of, of, of a rival idea of Islamic such uh, Islamic civilization that they weren't going to give up. Mm-hmm. So Sustel, uh, this is at the very end of the essay, Sustel's main concern now is to return to his country. Inaction need not be ennobled. I might abstain from political life, but I can't admit being ostracized after 27 years in the service of my country. This is part of the serenity of exile, and it may go when exile ends. The certainty of total defeat The defeat that leaves no more battles to be fought is its own dangerous solace. It can commit a man to hopeless duty and quixotic action and release him from the fear of failure. This playing with the idea of defeat appears also to come from the Sustel who makes art out of his experience and who now, in exile, has discovered all the consonances of this experience. The politician has known defeat. The ethnologist has studied a defeated people— a recent letter has told him that the Lancandones are in danger of extinction. The study of ethnology itself derives from a civilization that is on the defensive. The pattern too neat belongs to art. It is art, though, that comes closest, that comes close to self-indulgence. Even the Stoicism is like romance. One of Sustel's favorite historical tableau is the second-century philosopher-emperor Marcus Aurelius holding the Germans on the Danube. And I'll just read one more line here. This romance, which holds the fear of the sudden unknown destroyer, can be taken beyond the scholar's discovery of the nervous Aztec world awaiting Cortez. You know, the turning of uh, the feeling of defeat, the aestheticizing of the uh, the release of a, a certain defeat, you know, the, is its own intoxicating proposition. Um, the lost cause, you know, the, the yeah. romance of the lost cause. But and it's the classic. It's the classic reactionary mistake as well. The the turning turning some irrevocable historical defeat or change into its own romantic myth that... Yeah, and in another sense, the classic reactionary mistake is the confusion over the scales of history. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the perennial form uh, that might... You know, what is the thing that can be restored and, and what is the thing that's lost forever? How far back... Can you go? And what is the thing that's actually essential to the maintenance? And what, is, what is the pure? You know, what is the pure form and, and that, that is supposed to hold meaning versus the kind of living practice, right? So this is this is what um, the, the, this is the way this essay is structured is brilliant, right? 
it draws you really close to Sestel. It marks these differences. It, it seduces you into this worldview. It is this total enclosed world. I hate this view, right? Like, it's a be- it's an amazing essay. This This kind of, like seduction of sort of exhaustion and cultural decline um, drives me nuts. And, you know, uh, there's a bit where Derek Walcott in his Nobel speech is talking about um, being in, in Trinidad and seeing local actors put on the Ram Lila, right? Which, uh, you know, it's this Hindu religious traditional play and at first seeing it from the outside and seeing it as this kind of, um, uh, you know, poor theater, right? Uh, and and then uh, realizing, you know, as he's sort of experience, experiencing this, that, you know, I, out of the writers, uh, that, that it's, it, it is an authentic, like it's not pure mimicry. It's an authentic experience for the players, right? They believed in what they were playing, in the sacredness of the text, the validity of India, while I, out of the writer's habit, searched for some sense of elegy, of loss, even of degenerate mimicry in the happy faces of the boy warriors or the heraldic profiles of the village princesses. I was polluting the afternoon with doubt and with the patronage of admiration. I misread the event through the visual echo of history, the cane fields, indenture, the evocation of vanished armies, temples, and trumpeting elephants, when all around me there was quite the opposite. Elation, delight in the boys' screams, in the sweet stalls, in more and more costume characters appearing, a delight of conviction, not loss. And then he writes, and then he says, Consider the scale of Asia reduced to these fragments, the small white exclamations of minarets or the stone balls of temples and cane fields, and one can understand the self-mockery and embarrassment of those who see these rites as parodic, even degenerate. These purists look on such ceremonies as grammarians look at a dialect, as cities look on provinces and empires on their colonies. Uh, And he uh, quotes Freud, No people there in the true sense of the word. No people, fragments and echoes of real people, unoriginal and broken, right? Um, But for him, like, this is... This is authentic, right? The sigh of history means nothing here. We make, we make too much of that long groan which underlies the past. Break of A's and the love that reassembles the fragments is stronger than that love which took its symmetry for granted when it was whole. And for Walcott, this, this kind of like attachment to sort of civilizational decline, this sort of uh, emphasis on the exhaustion is its own form of romanticism and its own form of blindness to, you know, wherever you have people, you have productive potential and art. And, um, you know, uh, we mentioned before about how Fanon actually dovetails with um, uh, Franz Fanon, the great, you know, post-colonial writer, dovetails with Naipaul and is sort of like, uh, you know, kind of an exhausted intellectual bourgeoisie who can only sort of mimic or, or become parasitic. But Fanon also... Well, also the idea that the the post-colonial identity exists mm-hmm. in a kind of psychological bondage to the, you know, a, a psychological subordination to the colonial figure. Right. Um, but uh, the... But, for, you know, for Fanon, there's also, like, there are... There is sort of parodic mimicking class, but there's also sort of, and he actually points to Algeria and sort of 
the uneducated classes using radios and radio in innovative ways and, and other from taking this from Pablo Mukherjee, uh, who wrote about Naipaul and, and compares him to Fanon in, in, in an essay called Doomed to Smallness. Um, and the ways in which those, uh, they were not, they were, they were taking, you know, taking radio, doing something new, doing something innovative and not simply, simply mimicry, but that, um, in Mukherjee's telling, Naipaul can't consider that. It's outside of his purview because he's such a believer in sort of education and the sort of Western universal civilization that that's that's the 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 the, the method, um, you know, that's that's the, the the civilization that he's attached to, and he can't see sort of uh more local traditions as being a wellspring for for something new. He can only see the exhaustion. Yeah. Whereas, you know, speaking for, of and, exhaustion, and, yeah. hold yeah. on before right. we get in. There. I want to yeah. the uh, just end on the very end of this essay, um, which Jake, you read the first part of this paragraph, but I'm just gonna just gonna yeah, start from the beginning. This romance, the Sustel's romance of total defeat. This romance, which holds the fear of the sudden unknown destroyer, can be taken beyond the scholar's discovery of the nervous Aztec world awaiting Cortez. When he was a boy in Villarban in Lyon, Sussel liked to read the Roman histories of Ammianus Marcellinus. In a footnote in his last book, Les Quatre Soleils, Sussel retells a story from this historian. On a day in AD 241, Sussel says, the citizens of Antioch were at the theater. Suddenly, one of the actors broke off and said, am I dreaming? Or are those Persians? The audience turned. The archers of King Sapor stood on the topmost terrace. Their bows were drawn. Yeah, so that is uh, a perfect ending. I mean, in the sense of mathematical proof. Um, That's a perfect circle right there. Uh, Speaking of word choice, you know, like their bows were drawn. Drawn is the perfect word to end on the topmost terrace. I mean, it, it all slides into place. So we have two essays here that we've discussed. The modern essay by Virginia Woolf and uh, Jacques Soustel in The Decline of the West by V.S. Naipaul. How about, as a final word, an essay to recommend to our loyal listeners? I'll go first. There is a writer named Anatole Broyard, who I mentioned earlier and who I think you should all be familiar with if you're not. His uh, thing he's most known for, he was a New York Times uh, book critic. He wrote a a memoir about life in Greenwich Village after the war called When Kafka Was the Rage. That's one of my favorite uh, pieces of literature. And he also wrote, as a very young man, I think one of his first published pieces was in Partisan Review, I believe, something about his father dying. And it's an essay called What the Seistoscope Said. So... Um, if you look up Broyard, B-R-O-Y-A-R-D, the title of the essay is What the Seistoscope Said. I would recommend that. What do you got, Phil? Lives of a Cell. Uh, Lewis Thomas is a biologist who wrote these in the New England, New England Journal of Medicine, I believe, in like the 60s. These kind of poetic, philosophical meditations on biology. And animal life and insect life and and what it says about what human beings are. Um, And they're just these very short, brilliant kind of 
mind expanding essays um, that are also just beautifully beautiful written. Park, close us up. I'll recommend something I uh, recently read in preparation for an interview, but um, The Face of Sung Hee Cho by Wesley Yang, which appeared in the magazine N Plus One. I don't know the year, but that's... 2008, I believe. 2008. Uh, it, it's it, about... Isn't he a contributor here at Tablet? Wesley is a contributor to the magazine I work for, Tablet, um, and he's also got a book out that uh, everybody should pick up called The Souls of Yellow Folk. Yeah. So this essay is included in that book. Um, it's called The Face of Sung... I don't know how to pronounce it. Sung Hui Cho, but that's S-E-U-N-G dash uh, H-U-I. We'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's about a lot of things. It's about uh, the Virginia Tech shooter masculinity, violent sex, uh, Asian masculinity specifically. Um, but it, it's a little hard to sum up just failure, success. Yeah. yeah, no, he goes, uh, he goes for broke in that one. And, um, yeah, that's no, a, a remarkable, uh, remarkable essay about, uh, the Virginia tech shooter, Virginia yeah, tech, yeah. right? Yeah, Virginia yeah. tech shooter. Um, a good note to close on. What are we doing next time, Phil? Do we know? I don't know. I kind of want to do... Reading this made me want to do Walcott's The Muse of History. Okay. Because it's... It is a... It's a... It's a... It's a definitely a manifesto of sorts, and it is a repast to, I think, the Napoleon worldview in a way that is not... That is, I think, really interesting and powerful, and and could could be useful for us. So, and I uh, just want to say again, thanks to everybody who's listening. Please rate us and review us on iTunes. Uh, we 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 have a Twitter handle now, Pod Manifesto uh, at Pod Manifesto on Twitter. So you can follow us. And anything else that we should be saying? Really appreciate all the uh, listeners and and feedback that we've gotten and. Uh, yeah, appreciate for you folks uh, keeping with us. Peace.